I want to continue uh, the series that I've been working on the last couple of Sundays about the question, how do I know that I have eternal life? And I really am, am praying and desirous that for most of you, uh, this is a reassuring, um, confidence-building kind of uh, series of sermons that that's kind of saying, yeah, you know, it's affirming my commitment and my faith in Christ. Uh, I also uh, am praying that if there's anyone that uh, is taking the test and finding that you're coming up short, that you are having some conversations with God. The Bible says, um, you know, that the wheat and tares will grow together until the end of the age and in the judgment will be separated. Jesus said uh, in the last days at the judgment, there will be many who say to the Lord, uh, you know, uh, how come I'm not in the group that are being saved? And he's saying to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Um, You really never made that transaction of faith and trust in me for life eternal. And so it's important, as the scripture says, to examine our hearts and make sure, as Paul admonished the Corinthians, that we are in the faith. I also want to give, uh, before I dive in this morning, uh, a brief uh, note about the other side of the coin. Um, There are uh, always uh, individuals who struggle with self-doubt and with uh, inner turmoil and discouragement and uh, feel very insecure about their salvation uh, even when they are very secure in Christ um, because of various things that they're struggling with. And I'm praying for you as well that um, this will not cause undue suffering but really give you an opportunity uh, for some objective evidence that will support the the reality of Jesus Christ in your life and strengthen your your faith. Um, This morning, this is not uh, one of the tests that we take so much in the present moment, but the question is, what does repentance have to do with salvation? And it's the kind of test where I'm encouraging you to look back to that time when you came to faith in Christ and ask yourself, was that encounter with God, was that transaction that I made at that time uh, based soundly uh, in the, the gospel message? Is it based on scripture? And part of that experience should have included repentance. And even if you can't remember the time or the day or the place, and and I tell you very honestly, I had two experiences in my life. I don't mean I was saved twice, but uh, I I clearly had two encounters with God. Uh, One when I was seven years old at a Billy Graham crusade when I got out of my seat and left the stadium seats and went down to the ball field and met with uh, someone there and prayed and gave my life to Jesus Christ. And that was very real. And I honestly believe that that is the time when I met Jesus Christ. 
but I also encountered a period of difficulty in my uh, teen years and uh, had some struggles and issues with God and became profoundly depressed and discouraged. And there was a specific time. I, I do remember the place. I remember the evening. I remember that uh, it was a Thursday night and I remember what was going on when I knelt in my bedroom and once again did business with God and made a decision that my life was his without question and without reserve. And so, you know, I can, I can look back at those uh, instances, and, and both of them had this keen sense of repentance. Well, my testimony doesn't prove it's true. The Scripture proves that it's true, and that's what I want us to look at this morning and as we do, um, I think there are a couple things we have to answer about the, the matter of repentance. First of all, what does it mean? What does it mean? Secondly, uh, what is the scriptural basis for its necessity? Uh, if you're looking at your outline, second paragraph of the introduction, number two, uh, says the spiritual basis. That's a typo. It's the scriptural basis basis, the scriptural basis uh, for its necessity. And finally, did I experience godly sorrow and the right kind of change of mind? So let's talk about the definition. What is repentance? There are actually two words in the Greek New Testament for repentance. One of them is metanoia, and the other one is metamelomai. And uh, metanoia is by far used the most often, and it is the one that we concern ourselves with. It's the, it's the definition of godly repentance, but metamelomai is also used, and we're going to look at the difference of that in a moment. But metanoia, in its simplest bottom line sense, simply means a change of mind, to change the mind. Unfortunately, for those of us, uh, you know, in this century, we have a tendency to think about changing our mind, and we think of it in rather superficial terms. It's like when the server comes to the table at the end of the meal and says, what would you like for dessert? And you say, well, I'll have cheesecake. And, and uh, you know, he says, uh, do you want uh, the strawberries or the blueberry topping? And you say, oh, I have strawberries. And then he's about to leave the table, and you say, oh, wait, 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 I, I want blueberries. I changed my mind. I want blueberries. And so uh, we, we kind of think of that as the change of mind, and that's very superficial. The, the Greek concept of this change of mind is more than just, uh, you know, I want chocolate or vanilla. It, it goes to a change of one's mindset a change of one's attitudes, a change in one's heart regarding the core values and meaning of life. It's truly a change of mind about how I'm living. And so it involves living with my focus on myself, going the direction I want to go, doing however I please, and coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit 
that I am on that broad road that is leading to destruction. And I'm in trouble. And I need to turn back to God and redirect the focus of my life toward a relationship with God and righteousness. And uh, my whole attitude about sin has to turn around and go in another direction. That is the kind of change of mind that the scripture is meaning when it uses this word. The definition may be simple, but the depth of it goes much more than just the chocolate or vanilla kind of question. The change of mind represents a hatred for sin. And you can look at your life right now today, even if you don't remember the exact time and place and moment. And I have talked to people uh, who had no doubt about their salvation, and from the outside, as far as we can tell of one another, I had no doubt about it either, that cannot remember the exact moment that they made that decision for Christ. But they do know that they have made that decision. And if you ask them, you know, how do you feel today about sin and about, uh, you know, your own direction, about God and whatever, they will talk about the fact that they have in their heart a hatred for sin, a love for God, a love for righteousness, that there's something that is different about them now as a result of their relationship with God. As I mentioned, metanoia is the word that we're most interested in, but it's other word, metamelomai, um, also means a change of mind, but its focus is more on the fact that you got caught than it is on the fact of what you have done. It can very simply be explained by the cookie jar illustration, and I happen to have personal testimony there as to the reality of that. When I was a child, and some of you uh, that are in my age group probably remember these, uh, a lot of people had them, I think. There were these cookie jars that were kind of a, a yellowish color ceramic, and then they had fruit on them that stood out from the surface of the jar, you know, and they had this big, heavy ceramic lid, and it was just about impossible to open that cookie jar without making noise. You know, it just had a telltale clank, clunk, tinkle, you know, that it was like, ah, somebody's in the cookie jar. And, um, you know, I'd come home from school, I'd have a quick snack in the afternoon, and then somewhere around, I don't know, 3.30, 4 o'clock, my mother would typically say something like, uh, don't eat any more cookies because it will spoil your dinner. And uh, the the problem then became how to get more cookies without getting caught. And I worked at that, uh, perfected many techniques, you know, put the dish towel against the lid to dampen the sound and peel it back carefully with the buffer, you know. But sometimes I would still mess up and the clank would occur. 
And we didn't have a very big house, and my mother would inevitably hear it, and, and I would hear her say from wherever she was, Are you in that cookie jar? No dessert for you after dinner. And I would think, Oh, I'm sorry, but I wasn't sorry that I was in the cookie jar. I was sorry she heard me in the cookie jar. That was my only repentance was that my mother discovered that I was in the cookie jar. And so I was in trouble as a consequence of that. That is metamelomai. I wish I hadn't been caught. Now I have consequences, but I would do it again tomorrow afternoon. In fact, I'm planning to do it again better this time so that I don't get caught again. Uh, and that's the attitude that goes with that kind of repentance. But, you know, a lot of people, I, I think, do in fact have that kind of attitude when they come to a, a crisis moment in a convicting message and they uh, are, are in fact enlightened by the Holy Spirit that they've sinned and that they're on the road to destruction, and they're in trouble, and their attitude is, I do not want to go to hell. I want to be saved, but I really don't want to change. Uh, so I'm going to ask Jesus to save me, um, and then I'll have my fire insurance, and I plan to live the rest of my life the way I'm living it right now. Thank you very much. I'm really not terribly sorry about my sin. I'm just sorry that I'm going to be in trouble when I come to the end of the journey. True repentance goes much deeper. It goes to a godly sorrow for my sin and the fact that I have offended God. But what is the relationship between salvation and and repentance according to the scripture. That's really the acid test, isn't it? It doesn't matter what I think or what you think. It matters what the Bible says. And uh, let's look at Luke 24, 47. If you're a real fast uh, Bible uh, verse finder, um, turn to these. If not, listen and then read them when you get home. But in Luke 24, uh, 47, I'm going to begin in 45. Jesus is talking to the disciples that he has met on the road to Emmaus, and he is explaining um, what has been going on after the resurrection. And it says in Luke 24:45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, there are a couple of things important about his statement here. When you put it in combination with his statement to the disciples right at the time of the ascension, he said to them, I want you to wait in, Jer in Jerusalem until you have received the promise that the Father has given. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, and then Samaria, and then Judea, and then the uttermost part of the world. Your message of witness is to proclaim the gospel. And 
you know, many times we feel that the essence of that message is that Jesus Christ died for sinners and that he was buried and rose again and ascended into heaven and now forgiveness is available. But Jesus says to these disciples that the heart of that message is also repentance for forgiveness of sin. In other words, he equates repentance with the requirement of forgiveness. And he is saying that repentance is a part of the heart of the good news. You don't know you need a Savior until you know you're lost and in trouble. There has to be an awareness that you need saving before you're going to reach out to a Savior. And part of the gospel message is the awareness that I have sinned against God and I need to turn from that sin and repent. So we come to the book of Acts in chapter 2. Peter has preached that famous uh, Pentecost sermon and uh, they're pierced to their heart in verse 37 and they say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, repent. That's the first word out of his mouth in response to the question, what shall we do? Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, it is important for me to just take a side trail here for a quick second and talk about, uh, okay, so if repentance is necessary, why isn't baptism? Uh, don't they go hand in hand? That's a very good question. Again, I cite scripture for you. Remember Jesus on the cross between two thieves. One of them is screaming out to him all kinds of, in essence, profanity and blasphemy. And the other one says to him, what's wrong with you? Don't you realize that we deserve to be here, but this innocent man does not deserve anything that's happening to him? And then he turns his head toward Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now that's a profound statement of faith for someone hanging on a cross the end of which is death. He fully expected that Jesus was coming into a kingdom. And that's not where you expect to find a king. There was a clear demonstration of faith, but there was also the plea to be remembered. There, there was a change in this man's heart. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Um, there was not opportunity to be baptized. Baptism was not a necessary requirement for this man's salvation. It was the heart attitude. But Peter is expressing the reality that when you have that change of heart, there is an outward kind of demonstration. And for them, baptism was the testimony that, that something had happened inside of them. And so it becomes that outward declaration. I am following Jesus Christ. Later on, chapter 3, verse 19, Peter says, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away 
in order that the times of refreshing may come. Again, Peter is equating repentance with the ability to wipe away our sin. That change of heart attitude is a prerequisite to the cleansing of sin. In Acts 20, Paul is explaining his ministry. And as he explains what it was he did, remember, um, Paul is probably, in the New Testament era, the greatest missionary uh, that ever walked the planet, perhaps, as he traversed the Roman Empire, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you ever wonder what his message was? What was the essence? How could you boil it down to the kernel of his message? He explains it. He says in verse 19 of Acts 20, Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That was the essence of his message. Repentance toward God, followed by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians, Paul again says in verse 10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. Now, you can argue from this passage that Paul is speaking to believers as well as unbelievers in a general statement that repentance, the godly sorrow that comes in godly repentance, leads us toward the road to health or to restoration or healing. But that is true at the beginning. And it's also true anywhere along your Christian journey. You begin with repentance and your feet are put on the road toward spiritual health. And anywhere along the way that the Holy Spirit brings you under conviction of sin in your life, when you turn from it and turn to the Lord, it sets you on the path toward recovery. Can I use that word? <laughs> Healing, restoration. It brings you toward wholeness because it is the first step in moving in that way. Finally, in those verses I've given you 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. When he's talking about this, by the way, he's talking about the return of Jesus Christ. I've been asked to address a question in one of our small groups next week. Uh, the question is, if God is good, why doesn't he just kill the devil right now and be done with it? This is kind of a corollary to that question. If God is good, why doesn't he just send Jesus right now and be done with it? And, Peter says, God's not slow about fulfilling his promise, but he's long-suffering. And here's the reason, he doesn't want anyone to perish. In other words, he is delaying the return of Christ until as many as possible 
come through that narrow gate of salvation and are safe inside the fold. Not wishing that any should perish, but all should get saved. Is that what it says? Anybody reading there with me? (laughs) That's not what it says. What it says is, he is not slow that any should, uh, not wishing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. Because it is the first step in salvation. It is a necessary change of the heart. Now, hopefully those half dozen scripture passages will begin to convince you that repentance is an essential part of the transactional moment of conversion and new birth. That you have to come to faith in Christ through the path of repentance. There are those who vehemently disagree with that. There are evangelicals who say that repentance is a work and it is not important for salvation, that it's not part of the, not part of the equation. There are others uh, who say that you have to repent all the time in order to stay saved. That would be the doctrine behind the Roman Catholic confessional that you need to constantly be repenting and confessing your sin in order to stay saved or to stay in God's grace. Um, Neither one of those extremes is true. Our salvation does not hinge on some daily ritual of confession and, and, and repentance. But on the other hand, Those who merely have an intellectual assent to the facts of the gospel, the Bible gives them no assurance whatsoever. I know this is controversial because um, right after I came here, I was invited to attend a pastor's conference, uh, not of our denomination, but it was a pastor's conference, and the key speaker for the day was a man by the name of David Brees. And um, I was intrigued. I had come from Florida and had been exposed to some of the, what we call easy believism through Florida Bible College and some of their teaching at that time. But I was just astounded by what this man had to say in the meeting that I was attending as he spent an hour declaring that neither repentance, nor commitment, nor discipleship, nor anything like it was required to be saved. In fact, the only thing that was necessary for salvation was to agree that the gospel was true and to believe it. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world and for my sins, and I receive him as my Savior, and I have eternal life. And I'm here to tell you that 
James talks about those who have that kind of belief. And what he says is, even the demons believe that. And they tremble, wisely so. Because agreeing with the gospel is not being born again. Committing to the gospel with a turn of life and a commitment to Jesus Christ is what is essential for the gospel. David Brees says this in one of his uh, blogs. The use of this expression, saving faith, usually means that saving faith is the kind of faith which is first of all made up of repentance, which is then represented as something more than a change of mind. It's improperly defined as sorrow for sin or turning around or even doing penance. I happen to agree with him on the last point. Saving faith, then, is what is invariably presented as including dedication to the Lord, commitment to Christ, changing one's way of living. As a result, this construct called saving faith is freighted or burdened down with several causes, results, and inevitabilities which have now become in many uncritical minds, the essential part of saving faith itself. The result of this weighing down of our faith has been a great deal of confusion in the church in our time. Christians everywhere are wondering at the depth of their faith, concerned about the proper degree of repentance, analyzing the extent of their dedication to the Lordship of Christ, in that all of these and much more are included in the idea of saving faith, a fair amount of confusion has set in the minds of believers. Could not be more wrong. The Bible is very clear that in order to be born again, there must be a turning from sin, a godly sorrow expressed in repentance, followed by a genuine commitment to faith in Jesus Christ. The biblical word for believe, bestuo, literally means to make a, a, a commitment of the heart and mind that is demonstrated by the actions. I used to tell a story, I don't know if it was true or not, it could have been. The great Walinda was a little nutty at best. But um, the story is told of him stretching a tight wire across a great gap between two sides of mountains with a, a chasm in between, some sort of ravine, hundreds of feet down, and uh, asking the crowd... Uh, do you believe that I can push this wheelbarrow across this tight wire? Which everyone said, yeah, yeah, yeah. To which he is reportedly to have responded, get in. Now we know who believes it or not. And that is the essence of 
faith in Christ that transforms the heart. I am committing my life to him. Having repented of my sin, I am now following him with all my life. Now, the argument that repentance is a work is dispelled when you read the next three scripture verses, and I don't have time to read them to you this morning, but you have them there. You can uh, study them uh, when you uh, get home. I'll just mention them out loud, I think, uh, for the sake of those listening on the streaming audio. Acts 11, 18, Romans 2, 4, and 2 Timothy 2, 25. They're listed in letter B. If you read those, you find that repentance is a grace that God gives. Friends, the truth is, we do not have it in us to repent or to believe, quite honestly, until the Holy Spirit gets our attention through the preaching of the gospel or the testimony when I say preaching, it could be you sharing with a friend over a cup of coffee. And you share with them the gospel message and the Holy Spirit is at work in their heart to open their mind to understand. To give them the grace to turn from their sin. Jesus said this is his work in the world. To convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And he does that work as the gospel message is proclaimed. And then he enables you to make that turn of heart and mind. The Holy Spirit comes alongside you. God never asks us to do anything that he is not willing to provide the power to accomplish. And having given you the grace of repentance, he gives you the faith to believe but he asks you to make that commitment and so the Holy Spirit enables but you must make the decision and so let me ask you this morning as we wind down when you look back to that time when you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Did it go to the very core of your being? Did it include an awareness? Not just that the human race has messed up. Not even just that you as part of the race, yeah, I know we all make mistakes, and it's just it's just our lot. Uh did you have an awareness that you personally had hurt God by your sin, that you had grieved Him, that you deserved His judgment? I'm in trouble here. I'm in trouble. I need a Savior. I need a Savior. And if you don't remember that moment, just fast forward to this moment. Is that how you feel today? In your heart of hearts, 
are you aware that the sin in your life has offended God? Followed by a, an overwhelming gratitude for what Jesus Christ has done. That's the change of heart and mind that we're talking about. And you know, even today, I, I suppose some people, um, when they have sinned, it kind of nags at them because, well, I'm probably going to get punished somehow. I can't tell you how sad it makes me feel when, when you know, people say to me, I, you know, maybe I'm called to the hospital, maybe I'm called to some crisis or some problem, and somebody says, I don't know what I've done that, that God would punish me like this. And it's like, uh, you've got it all wrong. You Just from the get-go, you've got it all wrong. That isn't even the question in those moments. But when you are aware that you have sinned, and you become conscious of it, is there something inside of you that says, I have hurt the one I love, and who loves me the most? I have wounded his spirit. I am really saddened by that. And God, I agree with you about my actions. They're, they're awful in your sight. I agree with you. You are right. You know, that's what confession means. Homo logeo. To say the same thing that God says about your sin. God, you are right. And I am really sorry. There's no fear in love. When you know that God loves you and has forgiven you in Jesus Christ, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, John says in his first letter. It's not a question of, am I going to get punished? What's going to happen to me now? It's a question of, I've hurt the one who loves me most. And I'm sorry. And I agree with you, Father. I don't want to be like that. That's the attitude that reflects the Holy Spirit present. That's godly repentance that leads to healing. And we have to ask ourselves, has that transformation of heart and mind occurred? Let's pray together. Father, my prayer is that as we consider these questions that, again, the vast majority are able to say, yes, that, that's me, that, that, that's what I'm like. Again, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that 
doesn't recognize these attitudes of the heart, that you would touch them, open their eyes, pour your grace out in their life, let them know how much you love them, and that you long for them to come to repentance and a knowledge of the truth, to find the full forgiveness through Jesus Christ and life eternal in his name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.